Section 32 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End, The Professor and the Priests The critic whom I recently criticized, the critic who compared Professor Freud to a great moralist of the Middle Ages, was in one sense much more right than he imagined, or even than he meant to be. I had to break off rather abruptly last week the reply I meant to make to him, and this point at least may properly be added now. The critic is certainly quite wrong, historically, when he insinuates that medievalism was merely morbid and had nothing of the roistering familiarity with religion to be found in Mr. Belloc's drinking songs, with their Latin choruses. Small as is my own medieval knowledge, I believe I could pelt him with examples. Walter Mapp's song of Mihi est propositum is pure Belloc, and one could quote countless lines from Chaucer and cite countless carvings from the Gothic buildings in the world. But when we come to those parts of the medieval morality that do avowedly deal with the darker details of life, then it is true, as I have said, that the criticism comes closer to reality than the critic realizes. Indeed, the comparison is correct in every point except the only important point. It is true that the modern world has in many ways copied the medieval world. It is yet more curious that it has copied in the medieval world all that is condemned in the medieval world. Whether or no all mysticism is depressing, modern occultism and tales of terror are very depressing. Whether or no all morality is enslaving, modern prohibition and scientific supervision are very enslaving. And whether or no confession gives a dangerous and indelicate power to the priest, it is at least quite certain that psychoanalysis does give that precise power to the doctor. I should say that psychoanalysis was confession without absolution, because without repentance. But leaving on one side the question of whether it satisfies what people seek in confession, there is absolutely no doubt that it does exhibit all that people detest and denounce in confession. The latest scientific experiment is modeled on the confessional box, and there are at least all the same superficial reasons for labeling it as the wrong box. If such introspection is disease, the patients are doing it as much as the penitent. If such questions are degrading, the professors are asking them as much as the priest. There is not a page or a line written against confession in the whole world, atheist or anti-clerical or Protestant or Puritan, that is not of necessity a direct attack on the new psychology. It will be much wiser for the enemy to make another hasty alteration, drop the old anti-clericalism, and go over to the new psychology as a basis for the new attack. That is quite new and may last for several months yet. So much for the things in which the professor resembles the priest. And they are precisely the things, and the only things, which any honest people anywhere ever disliked about the priest. 
It is very much as if somebody had collected all these scandals about the church and then set them up as sacred things and a substitute for the church. It is as if the world made an inquisition into the inquisition and carefully kept all the thumbscrews while throwing away all the crucifixes. It is as if men went about to reform the papacy of Alexander Borgia and destroyed the chalice with which he celebrated in St. Peter's while preserving for public use the cup of poison which he mixed for his enemies. It is as if they collected all the scandals in monasteries and abolished the monasteries and perpetuated the scandals, as if they abhorred everything that should have been burned and burned everything that should have been adored. If it be a similarity and sympathy to build a church out of nothing but gargoyles, to make a miracle play out of nothing but devils, to make a theology that consists entirely of demonology and a divine comedy that cannot get any further than hell, then indeed we will admit that our faith has been made the subject of the sincerest kind of flattery, and no longer withhold from our accusers the compliments that are due to plagiarism. So much for the similarity. And now for the difference. The little detail of difference is this, that the religious analysis works for freedom and the scientific analysis for slavery. The former results in the stimulation of the will and the latter in the paralysis of the will. Men may work with much the same tools for very different objects, as a spade may be used for growing cabbages or for burying corpses, a knife for cutting a loaf or for stabbing a man. A physician and a poisoner may work at the same bedside with bottles and chemical preparations, and arms and legs may be cut off by Huns for amusement or by Harley Street surgeons for utility. Now the two types of psychological inquiry are rather like two types of psychical manifestation. Even in the popular ghost stories, there are two kinds of ghosts. There is a useless and hopeless sort of ghost who appears only to wail and not to warn. He can only announce, with the noise of lamentation, that a dreadful doom does in fact hang over Blunderbore Hall. He can only remind people by clanking chains and gibbering and other accomplishments that there is in fact a curse on the house of its bumble puppy. He considers himself, I suppose, a sort of candid friend, but he cannot be considered a helpful friend. He seldom makes any suggestions for exercising the influence of Blunderbore Hall. He does not condescend to point out any way in which the present Mr. Fitzbumble puppy can get round the curse or get out of it. For him the doom is a doom, and the curse is an incurable disease. And he is the exact counterpart of all the modern materialists who tell us, in many ways and in the name of many sciences, that men are animals and animals are automata, that no man can struggle against his heredity, that every man is at the mercy of his temperament, that one race inevitably dominates and another race inevitably decays, that all ethics are the result of economics, or that the modern mind must be manufactured by the modern machinery. All these are voices of the ancient specter of Blunderbore Hall, and the chain that he clanks is called the chain of causation. But to do the popular ghost justice, there is another kind of ghost who is naturally rather more popular. He is a sensible and useful sort of ghost who tells people to do things, 
to punish crime and clear the innocent, or merely to find lost property or hidden documents. It would be an exaggeration to call him a sunbeam in the house, but he certainly throws some light on the subject. By his intervention, Blunderbore Hall may sometimes be restored to the splendor associated with it before the time of the wicked Sir Willoughby, and Mr. Blumblepuppy can get rid of the curse and marry the village maiden. And under the image of these old rustic superstitions about him, the populace did shadow forth some vague impression of the good spiritual forces that come into the lives of men, that they may have more life and have it more abundantly. He is the counterpart of the other part of confession, which comes to remove a curse and not to renew it. But above all, it is the test of his innovation that its issue is in an action. There is something to be done. There is a declaration of liberty for the will. There is the difference between the two types of psychical intervention and the difference between the two types of psychological investigation. And the more similar they may appear in a hundred details, the deeper is the abyss between them. Of course, I do not mean that all psychoanalysis or everybody who goes in for psychoanalysis, must belong to the hopeless rather than the hopeful school. I do not say that the broad distinction exists between the sort of self-analysis introduced in a mystical age and that introduced in a materialistic age. And I do repeat that the whole difference is determined by this question of liberty, or the possibility of the will being victorious over the destiny. That is the difference that separates the realism of the penitent from the realism of the pessimist. And that is the meaning of the modern paradox, whereby the wildest anarchy of thought and passion is combined with the most servile obedience of organization. The materialistic mind has been made familiar with the idea of a force beyond its control to which it is bound to submit. Whether it be the disease of a remote ancestor or the direction of a remote ruler, whether it be the ghost in the haunted chamber or the policeman at the corner of the street. It is taught to understand the sentiment of surrender, whether it is surrender to passion from within or to power from without. It has learned the lesson that its own personality is powerless against impersonal things, whether it be impersonal nature or impersonal government. But the idea that personality has the power to decide has about it something steep and dizzy, like a precipice. For those who have grown used to creeping safely along flat and fallen places in a land of slaves, it is not because the form of penitence is subjection, but because the soul of it is liberty, that it is feared and covered over with falsehoods. And that is the cause of the confusion, even in the mind of the accuser, about whom I write, the incredible confusion by which he first declares that clerical books are as bad as blasphemous books, and then that blasphemous books are as good as they can be. What he means is that there are two ways of revealing the same shameful truth, and one of them stuns us like a club, and the other rouses us like a trumpet. End of section 32